Our scripture reading this morning comes from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, beginning in verse 67, where we read Zechariah's song. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's word. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. By which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his word, his word, which is truth. We pray that you would now sweeten that word in our mouths and in our hearts, that together we, with all of your people, might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might honor you more along life's journey as we enjoy you more. In that path, we pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, don't keep it open. That is to Luke chapter 1. But turn back to Psalm 132. Uh, I know you weren't thinking that I was actually going to preach on a New Testament text. That would be a bit of a stretch for me. We've already read the text that is my sermon text. We will be returning to Luke chapter 1, however, in the conclusion of the sermon. I'm in the middle of a four-part series, as some of you may know, on wisdom. uh, Two down, two to go. And uh, Mike asked if I could come and preach for him, given that uh, he was hopefully going to be away visiting a new grandchild. And in God's good providence, uh, that has happened. Uh, He said, since it's the Sunday before Christmas, could you something with an Advent theme? And I said, sure, I can I can put an Advent twist onto my wisdom series. (laughs) But then I decided to uh, do something different and preach on uh, on a wonderful Advent hymn uh, from the book of Psalms, as we might think of it. I've never preached on this text before. Um, I've studied it, I've read it, uh, but I must admit, I've really enjoyed just spending time uh, sitting once again in a fresh way with this most beautiful hymn that God has given us uh, in Psalm 132. Advent, 
the hope of Advent. Uh, Advent really is a time of hope. I was listening to some Christmas music. Uh, strange, I know. I was listening to a Christmas CD by Barbara Streisand on the way down. And then after that, I was listening to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Uh, but, you know, it's amazing how much Christmas music, even pop Christmas music, how much Christmas music has a thread of hope running through it. And that, that hope in Christmas music is articulating the hope that each of us needs in one way or another. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, this is my paraphrase, that the whole Old Testament was given to instruct us so that through the encouragement of those Old Testament scriptures, we might have hope. That presumes that we all need hope in one way or another, and Advent is really a wonderful time uh, for having our hope renewed. Because sometimes hope is like a candle. And while these candles are burning well right now, if we were to just let them burn and not attend to them, that flame would start to flicker. And eventually it would go out. And what a wonderful gift God has given us in the Advent season. That as we light candles, in the same way God rekindles that hope that we need in our hearts. Think of children. Um, what a wonderful time uh, Christmas is for children. The hope that is in their hearts. How many children right now are hoping that next Sunday morning when they get to, un to unwrap the presents, there's this or that particular gift or gifts. Hope, the, 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 the excitement the anticipation. It's all part of Advent hope. It can be scary. Uh, tell you a story. When I was fairly young, we were at the home of my good friend Jackie Wallace on Christmas Eve. And it was getting a little bit late. And um, I got a little bit antsy because, you know, if you are not in bed when Santa Claus comes by the window and looks in, nope, no presents for you in the morning. So I mean, my parents are chatting away and it's getting later and later. So finally we leave and I know we're leaving in plenty of time to get home. I, I had this wonderful blanket. So I, I was preschool at this time. I, I don't still have the blanket, by the way. I had this wonderful blanket and we're halfway home. And what do I realize? I realize I left my blanket at Jackie Wallace's house. So in the goodness of their hearts, my parents turned back to get my blanket, which is comforting and terrifying because it's comforting that I'm going to have my blanket. It's terrifying because I am sure that we're not going to be home in time for me to be in bed before Santa Claus comes by. Hopes deferred, says the book of Proverbs, can make the heart sick. So I trust that as we reflect on this beautiful psalm, that the Holy Spirit will just rekindle that hope in, in our hearts to whatever degree we need it, wherever we need it, in his goodness and in his mercy. You know, there's a new, ver there's a new verb out. You've probably heard of it. It's called T-bowing. You know, it's the thing where, you know, where he does this. I tell you, uh, he was tackled in the Detroit game. Did you hear about that? And one and the defender that tackled him in the background, in the back, what do you call it, backfield. I actually do know football. Kind of to make fun of Tebow, right after he sacked him, he bent down and did this. 
Detroit lost the next four games, and th- and that started <laughs> that started the Denver Bronco winning streak. Well, I was listening to a sports announcer, and they were actually being fairly kind to Tebow. And uh, the, the one guy said, you know, I really do hope that God is more concerned with who wins a football game. There, there are bigger issues. And even as adults, I'll bet you're hoping for this or that uh, Christmas present come next Sunday morning. But I know that you have hopes for things that are much bigger than the Christmas presents that might be under the tree. Things that really make a much bigger difference. I've listened to Tebow talk a lot. Trust me, that young man is far more concerned about much bigger issues in the world and in his own life than who wins football games, as important as that is to him as a rising star. And I know in the same way that as as wonderful as all those presents under the tree are, there are bigger things that you're hoping for. Psalm 132 talks about that, the hope of Advent. I'm going to divide this text into two. The need for hope and the reason for hope. And why do I divide it into two? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, He, David, swore an oath to the Lord. And then look at verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David. So the first ten verses are about David's oath to the Lord. And the latter part of the psalm is about the Lord's oath to David. So the psalmist has nicely split this psalm in two for us. By the repetition of this swearing of the oath, David to the Lord, verse 2, and then the Lord to David, verse 11. So let's look first of all at verses 1 through 10 as they, they talk to us about the need for hope. Why is it that we need hope? Now, obviously, this song doesn't say everything about why we need hope, but it does tell us a couple of interesting things. Now, if you have um, um, a Bible in front of you, in all likelihood, I'm just guessing that there might be some extra white space after verse 1 and before verse 2. And then there might be some extra white space after verse 9 and before verse 10. That's because this half of the poems actually split into three. David's oath and the significance of that oath is in verses two through nine. But that oath is wrapped up with two little prayers. Notice how verse one is a prayer. Oh, Lord, remember David. And then verse 10 is another prayer for the sake of David. Do not reject your servant. So we have a little prayer in verse one. And a little prayer in verse 10 that kind of envelop and surround that central section of this poem. So what I want to do is I want to start with verses 2 through 9. As they get us into understanding the psalmist's articulation of the need for hope. Why is there a need for hope in this psalm? And the answer is, in part, faithful service. That's what verses Two through nine are talking about faithful service. It's because of your faithful service in bringing the kingdom in, in your homes, in your church, in the workplace. It's because of your faithful service, oddly enough, that there's a need for hope. Why so? Well, your, your translation may also have a little of extra white space between verse five and six. That's because verses 2 through 9 are one unit that focus on David, but there are two parts to it. And the first part is how David promises faithful service to God, verses 2 through 5. 
And, and just notice how verse 2 ends with reference to the mighty one of Jacob. And look at how verse 5 ends with reference to the mighty one of Jacob. The poet is beautifully kind of packaged together these couple of verses, 2 through 5, that talk about that oath that David swore to David, where David promised faithful service to God. This is referring back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, which says that after uh, David had, uh, God had given David rest from all of his enemies, uh, and after David was living in a palace, David said, I want to build, if, if I'm living in a palace, it's not fitting that God should live in a tent. Back in the days of the wilderness wanderings, the people of God were living in tents. And so what was God living in? He was living in a tent because it's appropriate for God to live in a tent like they lived in tents. It shows that God really does come down to his people. But when they were living in permanent housing, it's no longer appropriate for God to be in a temporary tent. And so they build the, te- the uh, temple, permanent housing. That's all in anticipation of the incarnation that we are living here in the flesh and in need of salvation. And it's only appropriate then, you see, following this pattern that if God's going to come to be our savior, he's going to come and live in the flesh. He lived in tents when we were in tents. He lived in a temple when we were in permanent housing. And as we live out this life in this fallen world in the flesh, he comes in the flesh. And so that was that took some work. To build that temple. Notice what David says. It says it says of David that he swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house. That is my permanent dwelling, my my palace or go to my bed. I will allow allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my uh, eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, David is obviously using some hyperbole here, right? Does somebody give me a one word definition of hyperbole? Exaggeration. Now, you've got to be careful when you're talking about hyperbole in the Bible. Here's why. Hyperbole is exaggeration. At one point or another, all of your mothers told you, do not exaggerate. Because exaggerating is lying. So if exaggerating is lying... And hyperbole is exaggeration. And I say there's hyperbole in the Bible. What do you hear me saying? Now, I see the Bible is not true. It's hyperbole. Hyperbole is not exaggerating for the purpose of deceiving anyone. Why do we use hyperbole? It's for what purpose? To make your point with some power, with some emphasis. We use hyperbole all the time. That was hyperbole, by the way. (laughs) Sometimes Presbyterians are a little slow on the uptake. It took forever to get home. Notice what David says. He says, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord. Well, if he could build the temple in like 24, 48, maybe 72 hours, perhaps David didn't actually end up building the temple. It was Solomon. But what's he? Why is he using this kind of language? It's because of his commitment to be faithful in his service to God. 
He had a very strong commitment to be faithful in his service to God to the end that eventually a temple might be built. Now, notice in the next verses, in verses 6 through 9, notice how that, that service that David promised eventually came into realization. We heard it in Ephrathah. Ephrathah is another name for, interestingly enough, the city of Bethlehem. We heard it in Bethlehem. We came upon it in the fields of Ya'ar. Not sure what that is, 100%. Footnote in my Bible that says Kiryat Ya'arim is probably correct. If, if Jerusalem is here, Bethlehem is a little bit to the south and a little bit to the west. Kiryat Ya'arim is a little bit to the north and a little bit to the west near Jerusalem. That's where we're located. Kiryat Ya'arim was one of those places where the Ark of the Covenant was before it made its way to Jerusalem in David's day. So we heard it in Ephratah. We came upon it in the fields of Ya'ar. And what they're talking about is the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. The, the temple is built. It is now time to bring the Ark of the Covenant up. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. See, they say, let us go to his dwelling place. What did David say in verse 5? Till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling. Exact same word in Hebrew. In, in the first part, David is pledging himself to build a dwelling. In the next part, they're saying, let's go to the dwelling. It's been built. You see, faithful service promised... But not just promised, faithful service rendered. In the first couple of verses, we read of David's promising faithful service. In the next couple of verses, we're reading how that was actually rendered. The celebration, may your priests be clothed with righteousness, may your saints sing for joy. Now, what's this have to do with needing hope? Well, the fact of the matter is... While David is different than us, you're, you're a lot like David. Uh, you, there are plenty of places where you have pledged faithful service to God. Think when you took vows at the baptism of your children. Uh, pledging faithful service in the context of the local church. Uh, trust me, the temple did not get built just on the basis of promises, but, but because people actually rendered that service and, and hard work. You're not here in this facility and part of this body just because people made promises. You're here because like David, you not only promised faithful service, but you have rendered that faithful service to God. Uh, you've invested time, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, lay people, ushers, uh, musicians, people working behind the scenes, people inviting friends, people organizing. The only reason from a human point of view that we're here this morning is because you have not only promised God to faithfully serve him, but you've actually done it. And this local congregation and your families and your businesses are a result of that. Now, you're still wondering, what's this have to do with the need for hope? Well, now you see what we've done is we've kind of looked at like the meat and cheese in the sandwich. Now we've got to take a look for a moment at the two slices of bread that hold it together. Look at those two prayers that surround this text that celebrate David's promise to be faithful 
uh, and his rendering of that service. Notice it says in verse 1, O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. And it says in verse 10, For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. See, this, this half of the psalm is like a sandwich. A lot of meat and cheese and stuff in the middle, but then there are these two pieces of bread on the outsides that hold it all together. And they're articulating unmet expectations. And that's why there's a need for hope. Because we expect things as a result of our faithful service, but we don't always experience what we expect. And so we either quit or somehow there is hope sparked within us that moves us forward. Verse 1, the apparent unfairness of life at times. O Lord, remember David. Now the psalmist is talking to God. Obviously God has a photographic memory like on steroids. I mean, God doesn't forget anything. So when the psalmist is saying remember, he's not, he's not like human to human where there's a chance that we might have forgotten. It's not like that God has forgotten a few details about what David did. No, in prayer, when the psalmist says remember, he's really saying act on behalf of. He's saying the stuff that you know to be true about David, we need you to act on behalf of David. Act on that knowledge. Uh, and what is it that God knows about David that the psalmist wants God to act on? All the hardships that he endured. Now, some of our translations are going to do different things. Uh, I'm, reading for what, I'm reading from what is now called the NIV 84. Uh, if you go to a bookstore and ask for an NIV, what you think of as the NIV uh, is no longer being sold. It'll just say NIV on it, but it's, no, it's not what we're used to, the NIV 84. It's now the NIV 2011. There's a brand new edition of the NIV, and the old one has gone by the wayside. So when I say NIV, we've got to distinguish. The ESV, which some of you may have, which is right here in the, in the pulpit, and the NIV used the word hardship, but the new NIV, the 2011, says self-denial, as a couple of other translations do. There's a commentator who really captures this Hebrew word best when he says um, painstaking effort painstaking effort oh lord remember david and all the painstaking effort he exerted now let me tell you in the next verses all that effort that he exerted in committing himself to build the temple and in actually having that temple eventually built all the painstaking effort all of your painstaking effort in building the local church, in building your families, in raising your children, in building businesses, all, all which you have done as faithful service to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords. Well, why is the psalmist saying, O oh Lord, remember and act on behalf of David with regard to all this painstaking effort? It's because Israel at this time was in a situation where they were not seeing what they expected come to realization. They were extremely disappointed. There are times when life just doesn't seem fair. There are times when we want to say, Lord, 
Don't you remember how much I have done for you? Don't you remember what I've done in raising my family, in building the church, faithful in my work day after day, and look at what I'm experiencing, God? That's just not fair. I'm going to surprise you. I'm not going to tell you what you expect to hear, perhaps. You might expect the preacher at this point to say, Do you want fair? Think of all of your sins. Fair would be you're in hell right now. I'm going a different direction. I'm going the direction of this psalm. I'm just going to say to you, if there are times when you look at all of your faithful service and what you seemingly have gotten out of it and you say, that's not fair, that's okay, say it. That's how you feel. And that's how life really does seem at times. It just seems like life isn't fair there. We're supposed to reap what we sow, yes or yes. And there are times when we have sown good and we have not reaped a corresponding good out of it. And if if this is a little bit odd, and if there are those who would say, no, preacher, what you should be saying is you want fair? Fair would be to be in hell for all of your sins right now. Well, you're going to have to take that one up with God because he's the one who has inspired this psalmist to articulate for us all of David's faithful promises, all of David's faithful work. And then this big question, why all of this hardship? It just isn't playing out the way we anticipated it. And that's why you need hope. You need hope because sometimes life just doesn't seem fair. So what do we do when life doesn't seem fair? Well, you have a choice. You can quit. You can give up on whatever it is. You you can give up your faith. The psalmists were close to that. One time, a psalmist, Psalm 73, said, My feet had almost slipped when I considered the prosperity of the wicked. That's not fair. Psalm 1 says the righteous prosper and the wicked don't. And I look at the world and I see righteous people getting what the wicked deserve and wicked people what what the righteous deserve. And that's not fair. So much did it pain the psalmist that he said my feet had almost slipped. I almost gave up the faith. That's a choice that you can make or you can do something else. You can continue to hope. And that's what Advent is about, among other things, rekindling that hope. If you don't have hope, you don't take the next step forward. You've got to have hope in order to move forward. And God has given us once a year the Advent season to rekindle that hope because of the apparent unfairness of life. But also apparent rejection, verse 10, for the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. Now, that word reject might be various, variously translated. I remember my favorite rabbi, the old guy who said reading the Bible is like kissing your bride through the veil. There are times when you just, in translation, you just miss that immediacy, that intimate contact with the text, so we lift the veil. Woodenly, what the Hebrew says here is, do not turn away the face of your servant. Do not turn away the face of your servant. Beautiful image. And, and what it means is, do not refuse to answer my prayer. Imagine a little child looking up at you, asking you very kindly for something that that little child needs. And you taking that little child and you just turn the little child opposite 
back facing you and you say, go away. That's the image. That's what the psalmist is saying. God, I'm like a child. I'm looking up at you. I'm facing you eye to eye. I'm asking you to hear my prayer. Do not reject me. Do not do not turn my face away and refuse to answer my prayers. And sometimes when life seems unfair, it's compounded by the fact that it seems that God is just not there to answer our prayers. And if you ever feel that way, it's okay. It doesn't make you a second class Christian. It doesn't mean you lack, you know, this wonderful spirituality. It means you're like God's people throughout the ages, like this psalmist, who at times feel like life is not fair and who at times feel like God is not listening and God is not answering. And so what do we do when we feel rejected by God, when we feel the apparent unfairness? We can quit or we can do something else. We can remember that it's Advent. It's a time of hope. Now, you see, the first half really does get us in touch with why, the the need for hope, why we need hope. It's because at times life seems unfair and at times it seems that in spite of all of our faithful labors before God, in family, in church, in community, he's just not listening and answering our prayers. Now, I'm glad that the psalm doesn't stop there. I'm glad that there's a second part of the psalm, which turns that coin over and gives us reasons, a reason in particular, why we can have hope now and throughout the year. And in one word, it's promise. It's the Lord's promise, but that comes in three varieties. Your translation may have a little extra white space after verse 12. It may have a little extra white space after verse 16. That's because 11 and 12 go together. 13, 14, 15, 16 go together. And 17 and 18 go together as well. 11 and 12. The Lord's promise to be faithful. Uh, I love it. David pledges to be faithful to the Lord in verse 2. He swore an oath to the Lord. And the Lord pledges to be faithful to David in verse 11. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke, a trustworthy oath. God promises to be faithful to David. And when the psalmist is wondering, when the psalmist is wondering if life really is fair, when the psalmist is wondering if God's really there to hear and answer, He goes on to remind himself of God's promise, of God's sure oath, of God's commitment to be faithful to us. We have committed ourselves to be faithful to God. What are we going to get in return? The psalmist reminds us that in our covenant relationship with God, he is committed to be faithful to us as well. He's committed to To David, the promise, one of your own descendants, I will place on your throne. Now, here's where we have to imagine the context of this psalm. Imagine that we are living not in the glory days of David and Solomon or the kingdom of Judah after the days or or even when God's people went into the Babylonian captivity. We're reading this psalm when we're back from the Babylonian captivity And when we're in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah 
and the temple has been rebuilt. But what can't we find anywhere, no matter where we look? Remember, God made two promises. The temple will always be there, and the son of David will always be there. But after the Babylonian captivity in the days of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple was rebuilt, but there was no son of David anywhere to be found. There, it appeared that it wasn't working the way God had said it was supposed to work. And so into that situation, God reminds them, I know that, I know that what I say in my word and what you see in your experience don't match right now. And if we're honest, that's the way we experience life at times. What we read in the Word of God and what we experience in our lives, we just can't put them together. It's very clear God said David will never fail to have a son sitting on the throne. We're back in the land of Judah. The temple is rebuilt. There is no son of David sitting on the throne. It doesn't look like God is being faithful. You see, to have hope, you have to have faith. You cannot have hope if you walk by sight. You've got to walk by faith in the Word of God. And God's Word promised it. And you've got to cling to that promise that God will somehow be faithful and you will see in the long run that it really did work out in just the best way. Uh, I'll give you a small analogy of that. I I have a, a son who's just doing wonderfully well right now. Uh, he's living on Oahu. Uh, he's in the Air Force. He's a Chinese linguist. He has top security clearance. Um, he has a, 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 a maybe fiance as of Christmas Eve. We're not sure yet. Who is also a Chinese linguist in the Air Force stationed in Washington, D.C., about to head to Oahu in the spring. Uh, things are going wonderfully well. That's not always been the case. Just had Thanksgiving. I remember just a few Thanksgivings ago when Mark came home from his first semester in college, having earned absolutely no credits. Not even in racquetball did he get any credit. How do you how do you fail racquetball? Other than just like not going. Well, you know, I, I've had conversations with Mark and he's remorseful. He has said, Dad, I am sorry for how I blew off that attempt at college. And I have said, Mark, no regrets. That is part of the path. We didn't, when we were, I had hair a couple of years ago. We were pulling our hair out. We didn't understand. We, we see in the moment. We don't always see the big picture. But now with 2020 hindsight, I've said, Mark, let's presume you did stay in college. Let's presume you did graduate. Do you have any guarantee that at the end of that you would have a good job in our market, in our economy? Look at where you are. Top secret clearance, fluency in Mandarin. For the rest of your life, you can write your own ticket in terms of job and career. You see, but that's with 2020 hindsight. That's not where we live most of the time. We live in the middle of it when we've got to walk by faith. When we've got to believe that even though it doesn't look fair, it doesn't look like God's answering, God has committed himself to be faithful to you. And he will be. Look at verses 13 to 16, his promise to bless you. In verses 13 to 14, he's going to bless you 
with his presence. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place um, forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. So in the first half of the psalm, David promises to build a resting place. And now God has come and he's living in that resting place. And notice two times what it says. It says in verse 13, he has desired it. He says at the end of verse 14, for I have desired it. This goes beyond our imagination. Why did Jesus, eternal son of God, living in all of the splendor of heaven, take on human flesh, not momentarily, but forever? Because he desired it. God actually desires to know you, to walk with you, to live with you, to guide you, to be faithful to you, to be present with you, to bless you. He really does. I know we tend to think of ourselves not just as sinners, but as totally depraved sinners. It's all true. But there's another side to that coin. God has made you in his image. And as his image bearers, he loves you with an incomprehensible love. Do you have some people in your life that you don't desire to be with? You just kind of put up with them because you have to? That's not God's attitude toward you. He didn't come in the incarnation to be present with you because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He desires your presence with him, your fellowship. He desires, as the next verses go on to say, he desires to be with you in such a way that he blesses you. I will bless her with abundant provision. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life in all of its abundance. That's why he came. That's what he desires to bless you with abundance. The poor I will satisfy. How often do we think of God as the great denier? Oh, he just loves to deny us things. Because it's so good for our sanctification. But the psalmist says here, God says, the poor I will satisfy with food. In Psalm 81, God says, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. If we, being evil parents, know the desire to satisfy our children on Christmas morning with the things that they want, how much more does your heavenly Father long to satisfy your deepest desires? He promises to be faithful. He promises to bless He promises to provide in verses 17 through 19 to provide three things, a horn. That's a little weird. A lamp. okay, not quite so weird. A crown. Just a little bit strange for our culture. The horn in this ancient culture, as still in Italian culture today, you might see Italian men wearing a horn as a piece of jewelry. A horn is a symbol of power. And what this is saying is, here I will make a horn grow for David. Here eventually the day will come when I'm going to make David powerful. You don't even see a David right now, but the day is coming when I'm going to make David powerful. 
I'm going to set up a lamp for my anointed one, a lamp that will dispel the darkness, a lamp that will brighten the path for my people. And what is that day going to be like? I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. God is promising to provide with power, with light, with victory, with glory. You see, how can you hope? You can hope because of who God is. A God who has committed himself. A God who has promised himself to you. A God who has promised to be faithful to you. A God who has promised to bless you. A God who has promised to provide for you. But none of these reasons are the ultimate reason for why you can hope. Because I'm sure you've all had people make promises to you. And what have they done? They've broken them. So in a sense, promises are good. But if the promises aren't kept. That's why Advent is such a wonderful season of hope. Now turn back with me to where we started in Luke chapter 1. The ultimate reason for hope. Is because God has kept his promise. And since he has kept his promise, you can hope that he will keep his promise. And that is what we celebrate. Just the beginning, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. Advent. The vent is the come. The ad is the two. He has come to us. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. Notice it says in verse 70, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, I wonder who, I wonder where. Well, let's read the previous verse. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. What text is the is Zechariah obviously citing here? Psalm 132. He's citing this text and saying, everybody, I want, you know, that Psalm 32 business, you know, the preacher that talked about God being faithful and God blessing and God providing. And, you know, you had to walk by faith for yet from from the time of Psalm 132 for a couple of hundred years at a minimum. You had to walk by faith without being able to see it. But I want you to I want to tell you it's here because it's Christmas. Jesus is the one of whom Zechariah speaks here. Uh, Jesus is the one of whom the poet spoke in Psalm 132. You can have hope that God will yet in his own way, which is not always our way in his own time, which is not our, always our time. You can have hope that God will manifest his faithfulness to you, that God will bless you. That God will provide for you. And how can you hope that he will? Because he already has. He's already. He's already demonstrated the apex of his faithfulness in the sending of his son in human flesh. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To live a life of perfect righteousness in our place. And to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. To be raised from the dead so that we can have a right relationship with God. To ascend to the Father's right hand where he's praying right now. That in all those places where you really feel it's not fair. In all those places where you're saying, 
I just don't think God's answering Jesus is praying right now that you won't quit. But that you will have hope. Hope in your good God that he will come and make it all right. And how do you know? Because he already has. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We bless you for all of your gifts. But right now we bless you for the gift of the Advent season. We bless you for this gift as it is a time when your word and your spirit can reach down into our hearts. Each of us different, facing different circumstances, all of us the same, needing hope in one way or another, hope that tomorrow somehow will be better than today. Thank you for not only your word, but your spirit. And would you take this season this word, this spirit, and rekindle our hope. We pray in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.